If you are between the ages of four and eight, you are excused to Kids Club. We are five weeks into a series in First Peter that we've called Living in Hope. As we started this series, we noted that Peter was writing to a group of people who were called the elect exiles, a people who are simultaneously being rejected by the world and being accepted by Jesus. This forms a foundational truth for these people that he's writing to, but forms a foundational truth for us as well, that we are a people who will be rejected by the world. There's just nothing plainer or truer about how you will interact with culture than the reality that the world will reject you as you pursue Jesus. They will turn you away. They will push back on you. And that's the sweetness of the gospel. Because as you experience rejection from the world, you simultaneously experience an acceptance from Jesus Christ that is like nothing you will ever experience anywhere else. That's our truth. It's a foundational truth for this letter and for our lives. The reality that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. And as believers in Jesus Christ, our citizenship is not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. Therefore, our identity and our values should not and cannot be found here. And Peter reconciles all of that for us by calling us to live in hope. To calling us to a living hope. And one of the things I appreciated so much about some of the songs we just sang was the reminder of a living hope. Was the reminder that Jesus is alive and he's at work in all of our lives. So this morning I want you to open your Bible to 1 Peter 1 and we continue to dive in to this text. 1 Peter 1, 13 starts this way. It says, therefore, Peter starts with a therefore, which means that what is following is going to stand on what was built before it, which means some of you didn't think I was going to review, but we are. I tricked you. Peter writes to these chosen by God foreign living people and says this, That we should praise our God, and he gives three reasons in the preceding verses. He says that by God's great mercy, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. That we have a hope because Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins and rose again to new life. And that signifies to us both that our sin is taken care of. It's not on us to deal with. We've given it to Jesus That having believed in him, we can be given a living hope through his resurrection of the dead. We have a living God. And Peter presses on that further to say that this hope that we have springs within us a joy. A joy that can carry us through any situation or circumstance because we're not defined by our situations or our circumstances anymore. We're defined by a living hope that's eternal. And so as believers, we have a a joy, not a happiness, mind you, a joy that is undefinable. And that the salvation that we've received from Jesus is unique. And if you lean into that text and you read the Old Testament, you find that grace 
is an absolutely unique phenomenon in the Bible. That when God has administrated his people through the years, what he did for us through his son Jesus is absolutely unique and incredible. We have a great salvation. And Peter says, praise God for these things. Praise God for all three of these things. And as we walked through those texts, partly to be grammatically accurate and partly to impress you with my knowledge of large words, we called most of those things indicatives. An indicative being that which declares something that is true about you. It indicates who you are. It's an indicative. So Peter begins in, here in verse 13 to transition from an indicative to an imperative. And he starts his transition with the word therefore. While studying for this sermon, I came across a quote by American theologian Edmund Clowney. This is what he had to say about this therefore. Edmund Clowney said this, The imperative of Christian living always begins with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. What Clowney does for us here is he puts rightly the imperative after the indicative. That as Christians, we don't put imperatives first. We don't put out a moral code that says, do this, don't do that. We don't put out a, a code that says you've got to check these boxes accurately in order to be approved by God. Rather, Christian's theology states that what Jesus Christ did for us was sufficient. Therefore, we move to an imperative. And that's what, that's what Peter's doing here. That's what Clowney points out for us, except Clowney makes it a larger statement to say that all of Christian living begins with a therefore. It all stands upon what God has done for us through his son Jesus, not us becoming better moral figures. This therefore, then, doesn't lead to rule following. In fact, it can't lead to rule following. It it would be a mistake to lead to rule following. It actually builds upon who you are. And that's what Peter does here as he gives you these indicatives and moves to these imperatives. He gives you a reflection of what Jesus Christ looks like and what Jesus Christ looks like in you. And so Peter gives you these two things, and we have five verbs coming. I'll sound, try to sound smart again by telling you that two of them are imperatives and three of them are infinitives, but I just want to sound smart again. But these two major imperatives actually drive our faith. So those are the two we're going to lean into the most. One of them is mental, one of them is physical, but they start to define what Christian life should look like for us. So built upon the previous verses, Peter says, Therefore... And he continues on, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope. That's our first imperative. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. And Peter says here that we have hope. He says here that we have hope. And we have to set ourselves to it, and we have to set ourselves to it fully. So this isn't a partial hope. It's not a tiny hope or a small hope. It is a complete hope 
that we have to set to fully. And in order to understand that, he gives us two word pictures. Two word pictures that are actually really helpful because they help us to see that hope is not a flip a switch decision. You don't go, hope, got some, got it now, or hope, dial it up. But to understand that hope is actually a discipline, he gives us these two word images. And this first one is captivating to me. This is what he writes. He says, prepare your minds for action. Now, if you lean into this, prepare your mind for action, you actually find to be what I think is one of the manliest of all biblical phrases. Peter literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. If you've never leaned into what a girding up your loins means, it's a pretty manly phrase. And if you've ever wondered what it looks like, I brought you a helpful graphic. So if you'll give me my graphic, here's how one girds up their loins. You find... You have a normal Roman man wearing his normal tunic, living about his normal life. Now, he could approach life the same normal way, but if you've got to get ready for a fight, you gird up your loins, which in this case means you take your tunic, tuck it between your legs, tie it around yourself, pick up a sickle, and go with a fight. This is what it means, literally, to gird up one's loins. It's actually a pervasive term throughout the scripture, most notably found in Job 38.3, when God says to Job, gird up your loins like a man and stand before me. It means get ready. Prepare yourself. And the phrase puts forward before you this idea of moving from the normal and preparing for battle. Prepare your minds for action. And friends, if it's going to be a battle you're preparing for, don't always expect hope to come easy. He says, prepare your minds for action for this battle. You're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to gird up your loins, as the King James writes it. Prepare your minds for action. Be ready for a fight and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare for a fight and he gives you a second word picture. The second one says be sober-minded. Quite literally, be totally self-controlled. And the word picture that he gives you here is this idea of choosing sobriety and rejecting drunkenness. And what he says here is not merely about clouding out, you allow alcohol to cloud your mind, though it exists. He's actually writing of a spiritual sobriety, which means that you don't let anything cloud your mind. You don't let anything cloud your judgment. You choose to be free of any kind of mental or spiritual drunkenness. And you choose not to be controlled by outside factors, not to be controlled by outside influences, not to be controlled by your situations or your circumstances, but to be clear-minded. So when he puts before you these two ideas, he says if you're going to set your hope on the grace that's going to be revealed to you in Jesus... If you're going to make Jesus your hope, you're going to have to fight for it. 
You're going to have to wage war for it. You're going to have to clear your mind, let go of a lot of the outside distractions, purify your thinking, and aim at Jesus. That's how you set your hope. And that if we're going to be a people who are chosen by God, living as foreigners in a land that's going to abuse us, take us for granted, and reject us, we're going to have to fight to keep Jesus before us and to make him our hope. And that's what he's saying here. Make Jesus your hope. And this idea of being self-controlled is pervasive in his message and throughout the New Testament. In fact, a couple chapters later, we'll get here. In 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He writes back to them and continues to add, Be self-controlled. Watch the things you think about. Approach it with a clarity for the sake of your prayers. That you'll be able to pray a more righteous a more clear prayer life. And in the chapter later, he says, be sober-minded, be clear-headed, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that is so true in regards to your hope. That we serve a living God, and in stepping into that belief, we also believe that Satan is alive and active. And in this case, As Peter puts it before you, he is looking for someone to devour. And friends, that can absolutely be you. It can be your hope. It can be your situations. It can be your circumstances. From time to time, I end up watching National Geographic with my kids. Or some variety of the Discovery Channel. And it's always funny when you do, you turn it on, and every once in a while you've got a, a lion hunt going on. And if you watch it, you, it's interesting how my kids watch these things. It seems like Anna Kate's always for the gazelles. Um, I love her precious little heart. She thinks they're going to win. Uh, I'm not sure how gazelles win that fight. Um, but the lions always come. And when you watch the lions move, you will note that when lions attack gazelles, they always wait for one to get isolated. They don't go after the pack. They always wait for the one to get isolated, and then it's looking like a tasty snack on TV. Even I can be convinced, I should go after him. And they go after him, they pounce on him, they take him down. Friends, that happens in the Christian life too. That Satan has a desire to isolate you, tear you apart, shred you, and destroy your hope. Satan is roaming around, prowling like a roaring lion. Be sober-minded, be clear-headed. Paul uses these same admonitions to believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. He says, so then do not sleep as others do, but keep awake and be sober. He approaches it the same perspective of don't be lazy, be aware. Two verses later, Paul adds, but... Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, also an active move and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, this picture of preparation 
And in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says, And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And Timothy parallels what Peter's saying here. Be clear-headed as you lean into your hope. Peter, or Paul writes, and endure suffering. The very thing Peter's going to continue to put before us, that if you choose Jesus, you will suffer. So both Peter and Paul put forth this single-mindedness, this clarity that needs to be sought in order to win the hope that we need to be defined by. So when Peter writes, if you're going to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he tells you, you first, hear your infinitives, prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded that having done those two things, having prepared yourself for war, you will be able to set your hope fully, completely on the grace that is brought to you. And that's why our series is called Living in Hope. Because we want to be a people, we want to be a church that doesn't just have hope, but that lives in it. That lives in this reality that Jesus is alive, that he's moving And we want to set our hope fully on him. He is our hope. Peter moves from the indicative, who you are, to the imperative. How do you live? By calling you to set your hope. And then he gives us a second imperative that comes in verse 15. When he writes in 14, 15, and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you must also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When Peter writes, based on who you are in Jesus Christ, based on the fact that Christ died for your sins as you've been born again, given this living hope, God is worthy of worship for all of these things. says, set your hope and be holy. And with your hope set, Peter here calls you obedient children. And let's lean into that for a second to see that the word of God here, God's scripture, which he breathed out, that he worked through the hands of Peter, as he would say in his second letter, to inspire these words that call you obedient children. The scriptures assume your obedience. And in fact, they talk to you that way. And and it's not this kind of passive-aggressive move to guilt you in. It's not this letter that Peter's going, oh, you like when I look at my kids, hey, daddy's a little obedient kids. It's not like that. God's actually encouraging you, edifying you, declaring truths about you, and calling you obedient. There's this assumption here that when God says something, that we do it. There's two ways we can take that, and I'm pushing us to the positive way. That the scripture's forecasting our obedience. It's seeing us in this positive light. And as obedient children, Peter says this Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And Peter puts a philosophy before us that suggests that what you are passionate about, you will conform to. 
that what you're passionate about, you will conform to. What you stare at, you'll become like. And in this particular case, he talks back to this position and he juxtaposes this life God's calling us to, to this former life we lived, which he calls ignorant. J.B. Phillips, who, by the way, paraphrased the Bible long before Eugene Peterson. Don't think the paraphrase is a new thing. Peterson did it 10 years ago. Phillips did it in the 50s, but he paraphrased it this way. He said, don't let your character be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. Don't look back on your life when you had silly passions, silly things you wanted to chase, and let those things, decisions you made 8, 10, 20 years ago that were stupid, continue to be the basis of your character. That you push on into sanctification. And what Peter writes here is an Ephesians 2 truth to me. And in Ephesians 2, Paul writes it this way. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. That if we step back and we want to consider ourselves made alive in Jesus Christ, you have to consider the reality that before you were alive, you were dead. The Bible makes that plain and clear. And that if you don't know Jesus, it says you're dead. That you are not alive. That life only comes through the Son. So this Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That there's this reality in the scripture that we once stupidly chased our desires and we carried out the desires of our flesh and it led to our wrath. And in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul writes, But God... Rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This reality that God takes us from the old and he makes us new. And so we turn away from the sins of our youth. From time to time, I've loved this analogy. I've probably used it a dozen times in preaching. But when Pierce was younger, around 18 months, when he would want to defy me, when he would choose rebellion, when he would want to get back at me, he would look at me in the eyes, he'd run into the bathroom and touch the toilet. And he would just sit in there and he'd pat that thing and just look at me like, Dad, I'm touching the toilet. What do you think? How do you like me? Touching the toilet. And I would always look at him and his 18-month-old self and be, son, you're touching a toilet. <laughs> like, let's just process this. And the funny thing is, the more I process it, the more I realize how stupid my sin is too. Like, I think he's a moron because he touches a toilet. 
And yet I think what I do totally makes sense. No, it's just as crazy. That we do some things that are just as unhealthy, just as unsanitary, just as unhelpful as if, God, hey, I'm touching the toilet. Look at me now. And what Paul and Peter both put before us is that the gospel changes us. In fact, it conforms us to a different image. The word of God here commends us to turn away from former passions, from former rebellions, and to be conformed, as Peter puts it. And if you find Paul uses the same word in Romans 12, when in 12.2 he writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That there's this call within us as we put our hope in Jesus Christ. We fight for a hope in Jesus Christ. That we are conformed by Jesus Christ. And so when Peter writes this, and he gives us this strong contrast to these former passions, these things we chase, these things that we were conformed to, he says in 15, But as he who calls you is holy. He who called you is holy. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. holy. Therefore, God is not calling you to anything he is not. Rather, he's calling you to reflect who he is. And do you see the distinction? That the call towards holiness is a call towards reflecting who he is. And you do that by repressing your former passions. By being conformed to Christ. By becoming a better reflection of who he is. And that's radically different than rule following. That's radically different than checklist Christianity. Where we measure ourselves based on our neighbors. This is a picture of our faith. Where we look at a holy God and say, how do I better and more adequately reflect him? So the sins that I struggle with that are way less complex than my neighbors, don't get excused anymore. Because I'm looking at God and saying, how do I better reflect you? Not how do I compete with my neighbors. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy what it says here is be like him. And you see what we've been talking about, how the imperative flows out of the indicative here. It is who you are. It is living out the reflection of who he is. It's not a moral calling, but a calling to reveal God. Theologian Wayne Grudem wrote this about holiness. He says, to say that God is holy means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Thus, things that were holy in the Old Testament 
were both set apart from ordinary or evil use and devoted to use in glorifying God. So if we're going to take what Grudem writes and we're going to apply it to you, because if this is describing God's holiness and God's word says you should be holy as he is holy and what God's holiness said about him, the things that were holy in the Old Testament were things that are set apart. It's one of the most common definitions of holy. But he steps in to say that they were set apart from the ordinary or the evil use. That they're things devoted to being used by God. So if you want to lean into that, this call for you to be holy is a call for you to understand that you're not ordinary anymore. There's nothing about you that was set apart for ordinariness let alone evil use. You were set apart. You were declared holy so that you would be devoted to use by God. So that you'd be in His hand. So that He might use you as a reflection of Him. When Peter comes to this, when he comes to this place before us, to call you to be holy, you got to see it's not a moral code. It, it flows from the indicative. This is what the scriptures said true about you. So be the reflection of God it's calling you to be. That means you don't make a list. It means you prayerfully seek God and you look at God's character. And as you spend time in this book and you struck Start noting things that are true about God. Man, God is so faithful. How could I reflect his faithfulness? How could I be a better reflection of his faithfulness? Man, God is consistent. How could I be more consistent? How could I be a better reflection of his consistency? And friends, this pervades our whole lives. Because it's just as true about my holiness to God being reflected to my wife as it is to my kids, as it is connected to my coworkers and neighbors. How do I become a better reflection of who he is? So when Peter comes to this, he puts all of this together, and he writes this, therefore, in 13. He's writing in light of being born again, in light of a living hope, in light of the joy that springs from the hope that we have, in light of the greatness of our salvation, Peter gives us two things. Two things. He says, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope. Dedicate yourself to Jesus Christ. Chase Jesus. Be passionate about Jesus. Follow Jesus. And be holy. Be holy. Be a better reflection of who he is. Live a life that reflects who he is. I want to close with this Bible verse. It's a challenging one. 2 Corinthians 3.18. In one case, is one of the most complex verses in the New Testament. In another, one of the simplest you'll see. It's not on your screen. I didn't give it to Tom. But this is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And I want you to listen closely. And we all, that's all of us, right? 
with unveiled faces. You lean into the text, and what, what Paul is writing here is that because you know Jesus Christ, you have an unfettered access to God so that you can meet with God without having to hide anything. You, you're able to sit in his presence, to be with him in his entirety in a way that was unacceptable or unaccessible in the Old Testament. For we all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we behold God, we meet with him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now we could preach on this text for days, literally. But I want you to see one thing that's true about it because Tom dug it up for me. One, note that this verse is passive tense. That as you behold the glory of God, you are transformed. It doesn't say behold the glory of God and work hard. It doesn't say behold the glory of God and sweat it out. It doesn't say behold the glory of God and white knuckle your faith. Now there's a place for effort. And effort is totally different than finding your value in something. There's a place for effort. But what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians 3 is, stare at Jesus Christ. Be passionate about Jesus Christ. And you'll be conformed to his likeness. And you'll be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, that's where we're all at. We're all being transformed in one degree to another. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as you intended Peter to write this text, there are two calls to the believer here, flowing from the reality of salvation that we have. One, that we would set our hope fully on Jesus. That we'd go all in and living in hope. That Jesus would be the only thing we'd trust. That Jesus would be the only thing we'd build our life upon. That we'd go about it. That we'd fight for it. That we'd be clear-minded about it. And that the, through the challenging and difficult days of being rejected, that Jesus would be the true thing to us. That Jesus would carry us through. And a strong call towards holiness. That we look at our lives and become a better reflection of Jesus. Not to become a rule follower or a Pharisee. Not to win a fight with our neighbor for who can look cleaner. But to earnestly desire you and your heart and to be a better reflection of who you are. God, will you make that true in our lives? Will you give us the strength and the forbearance to stare at you this week? to look at you and to be conformed to your same image. Father, as each of us pursues you from one glory to the next. God, we love you. And we're so thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ that at his death and his resurrection, any of this is even possible. Father, that we could be known fully, that we could be accepted completely, and that we could be set out into a mission that we're so undeserving of. God, we love you and we're thankful for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.